Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 72nd episode of the Truth Island podcast. The medieval legend of Faust speaks of a man named Faust who is highly intelligent and successful in life, but becomes bored. There are many iterations of this story, but the basic premise is that in his boredom, Faust makes a deal with the devil in which he has provided unlimited knowledge and pleasure and a servant that can grant him magical powers. The deal goes that for a number of years, Faust will have this demon at his disposal, but at the end of the term, his soul will belong to the devil and will be internally enslaved. Faust uses his powers for obvious pleasures to, to seduce a woman named Gretchen who bears him a child, but she ends up drowning her own child. In some versions, God saves Faust from his unholy bargain with the devil. In other versions, his soul actually does go to the devil and he spends all eternity in hell. In a more modern sense, however, the term Faustian bargain has come to mean doing something unsavory or corrupt in order to reap the rewards of material and carnal pleasure. For example, an employee who is asked by his boss to lie or forge documents to show record profits would be said to be committing a Faustian bargain in order to keep his high paying job and maintain a lifestyle that he deems worthy of his station. Often Faustian bargains come in the form of committing acts which will most likely harm others, but will be of direct benefit to ourselves. A corrupt politician taking money from lobbyists, for example, who may not have the best interests of the nation would be a prime example. As the politician compromises his or her soul for monetary gain and the hopes of being reelected at the expense of the welfare of the nation and perhaps even their own sense of morals and ethics. Whether or not you believe in the idea of an ethereal soul, we can think of the soul as also being a stand-in for a, our values. Each time that we make deals or, or compromise our values for something that we think we want, we are in turn making a Faustian bargain. One need not be dragged to the depths of hell to experience these consequences, but perhaps the, the compromise lives and festers within the belly of a person's subconscious. Joining me to help discuss when we might be making a Faustian bargain without even realizing it, I am once again joined by Sam. Sam, help me save my soul, please. You got you got it, Aaron. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for thanks for having me back on your show. It's always good to be here. Anytime. Yeah, uh, I think that that was a really succinct, um, great explanation. Um, you know, I haven't read a lot of the kind of primary sources on the Faustian bargain. So your explanation just really uh, opens things up for me there. I, I, I One of my favorite movies is uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And uh, I was thinking about that as you were talking, uh, how there's a young black man who um, meets, you know, someone whom he calls the devil um, at uh, a crossroads in, in rural Alabama. And in exchange for his soul, uh, he, he learns how to play the guitar um like no no one else no one else like he just becomes this amazing uh guitarist and and delmar one of the kind of the goofy guys of the three he goes you souls your everlasting soul for that and um and the young black man's like yeah i mean and then when you watch him play you're like okay i get what i get why you did what you did 
And I, I, I think that's, you know, like more of the traditional kind of view of the, the exchange, the deal with the devil. Um, I liked how you kind of brought it into our everyday lives. Kind of the, the practical application of it is that, um, you know, working a job we don't like or mistreating others or, um, you know, you and I have talked about how people stop doing what they're passionate about for their most immediate desires uh, to go unfulfilled. Um, there's an exchange and um, it, it has to do with, I think, losing and recovering, hopefully, our authentic self. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think like the Twilight Zone is a prime example where it's always super obvious who the devil is, right? He's usually a, a, a thin, good looking man in a suit, has an evil laugh. Um, there's a cloud of smoke. He's got like a contract and you're signing it with blood. And in life, it's never that obvious, right? It's never that obvious of, of some evil person. But most of us, when we're making this deal with the devil, we're actually making this deal with ourselves, right? It, it, it's it's that's the that's the really important thing here to do. Yes, um, like in my example, there might be a boss who's asking you to do something uh, unsavory, like lie about a report or lie about um, you know financial statements and so forth, but look at all the nasty things that we do to one another. Look how many times you've worked with somebody and they threw you under the bus because they were either afraid or they wanted to kind of get ahead. And I think these are the kind of deals that, that we're making internally in our own mind without even realizing it. Totally. And I, I consider myself, I guess, kind of blessed that I haven't had to be in the situation of a politician or a, a you know, a head of state or something like that, where my decisions affect millions and millions of people. But, but uh, you, you know, I, I have struck my own Faustian bargains, which have hurt myself and those around me. I, I, th I, I think it comes back to the concept of uh, identity and, and self, selfhood, because, you know, we, um, it, it, like you said, it's a struggle kind of within ourselves, with ourselves. You know, no one talks to you more than you. It's this concept of self-talk. The voices that we kind of acquire throughout our lives, um, through our family of origin and school and different kind of organizations that we're part of, um, voices that kind of continue to ring inside of our head and, and dictate our actions. And so what we're really talking about is kind of a wrestling match with ourselves um, learning how to discern the voices, not in a schizophrenic way, like, you know, people are talking to us or I hear voices, but just the, the kind of influences that, that have shaped us and continue to shape us. And some voices, for some reason, just continue to ring out louder than others. And um, so much of my adulthood has been taken up with kind of parsing those voices out, figuring out whose voices those are, which ones I need to listen to, why I continue to listen to certain negative ones, and why I don't kind of continue to grow into my authentic self. So I think that there's two major reasons why this happens. And one is opportunity and the other is fear. Let's just focus on opportunity first. And it's really funny, Sam, because when I was younger, I thought the word opportunist was a was a good word. I actually thought, oh, that guy has ambition. He's an opportunist, you know. And I I, I used to equate that word with I I did not know better. I actually thought it was a good word, and I meant it, you know, a young, you know, aggressive guy going out there in the world and making something for himself. And I I think our media 
glorifies that as well, right? Because if we look at the protagonists, if we look at the main characters of a lot of our movies, we're not, they're not saints, right? Like a lot of these, and I, I talked on a previous episode with my friend Kenny, a lot of our protagonists are not saints. They're just really intelligent, really able to kind of maneuver and take opportunities. They, they see like a vital weakness and then they kind of exploit that vital weakness to win at the end of the day. And I think a lot of young people in America are seeing that and they see that behavior is getting rewarded. And I think the, the most... Um, prime example is in the in the realm of politics okay it's come to a point um regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum i think as americans we just blindly accept that our politicians are corrupt to some degree we, we, we whether you're republican or democrat it's like it's almost the ipso de facto thought pattern is that they're all corrupt and i'm scratching my head being like well whose fault really is this? Is it the politician's fault? Is it our fault? And I think we both, I think we all have our hands bloodied in this because our society is being set up not to reward the most virtuous or the most wise amongst us. It's actually being set up to reward the most clever and the most opportunist amongst us. So I, I think that the individual is obviously making unsavory acts, but then we're also living in a society that applauds that and doesn't really levy any consequences when this occurs. Totally agree. I think our political uh, environment is, is um, and this is mild, putting it mildly, is toxic, but it's kind of a representation of our cultural uh, cultural values. It's kind of our cultural values writ large is what we're seeing in characters like, honestly, like Donald Trump and and others, this kind of toxicity and and I think um, you know for example not to get I definitely don't want to go down the Trump path today or, or really ever but um, in conversation but but just to say that you know we um, as a culture and I've felt this in my own life uh, with influence in within my own family that it doesn't really pay to be a nice guy like integrity and like being nice and kind of um, docile. Um, like those are not good cultural values and they, they won't be rewarded. And so if you really want to grow into your authentic self and live your best life, you need to become more assertive. You need to become more aggressive. You need to cut corners. Um, in some ways you need to abandon integrity. And I, um, I kind of went through that process myself in not in a political way, uh, but like in college and sort of towards the end of college and after college, I had been a pretty sort of nice guy, you know, pretty harmless uh, guy up until that point. And then, you know, my brother kind of brought it to my attention that, you know, I would get a whole lot more attention from girls if I was more assertive and even a little bit more aggressive. And I uh, sort of took pages out of his book over the last decade. And um, you know what? It didn't really pay off. I felt like I struck my own Faustian bargain during that period of time and I sort of lost sight of my authentic self and it's like I'm longing to like come up for air is what it feels like and was like in the deep end of the pool coming up for air to breathe again to live again not to necessarily return to 2010 or 2005 when life seemed to be simpler and I like it was more like Garden of Eden before the fall you know like a stage of innocence but there is a feeling of that. I think what I'd like to do is kind of reach back into that part of my life and then sort of bring it into where I'm at now and and become 
more of a kind, the kind, life-giving, and even safe person that I think that I really am. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I actually got that same exact advice for picking up women. Like, dude, bro, you got to dress up, man. Let's let's wear some darker jeans, you know, like, 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 you know, screw some things up a little bit. And what I actually found is that the more aggressive I was, the more I tried to dress up and so forth, it actually just the complete, completely backfired because I was not being my authentic self. Girls have actually fell in, fallen into my lap when I was wearing sweatpants or some like dirty undershirt and like hadn't shaved in three days. And they were like, oh, well, that guy's really uh, into, you know, psychology or whatever it is. And when I was when I was in in like in my stride. Right. And my my default self is a guy who wears T-shirts with Star Wars on them and sweatpants when I'm in my like my natural habitat and my natural clothing and my natural attitude. And I'm really a nice guy. Like I, I really, I can't help it. I, and I've tried my best to, to change. And, and the, the one, the one rule that I will change is that I don't let people take advantage of me. And I still think you can call yourself a nice guy, but not be a doormat. And I think every biblical text, I think every religion says, don't be a doormat. Like you can be a nice guy and treat people with dignity and respect, but don't be a doormat. And that I fundamentally uh, agree with. However, I want to share another story with you, Sam. I remember I worked with a a colleague, a, a female teacher, and she said, yeah, I'm mean and bitchy and I'm proud of it or something like, and she just like outwardly said this you know, at, at, at like a faculty meeting and people, people applauded it or people were like, okay with her saying that. And I was like, I was just shocked. I was like, you know, you're outwardly professing that you're a mean bitchy person and that we should respect you and that this is a wonderful thing. I'm like, you're an educator. You're an educator of young minds and you're outwardly professing that you give in to bad behavior. And she actually was like uh, the type of person that, you know, if you were, if you were a loose thread, if you were holding her back, or if you were in the way, she threw you under the bus. She ran to the principal and ratted you out instead of like being like, Hey, um, I really want to talk to you about this. Could we, you know, like, no, no negotiating, just the pure Machiavellian. Like I I'm here to rise to the top and I take no prisoners kind of attitude. And that kind of personality can only exist in ecosystems and environments in which they're allowed to flourish. And that's why I think it's not just her fault. It's also the school's fault and the larger society's fault for being like, yeah, girl, you, you go ahead and take no prisoners and chop people's heads off or whatever it is. And I'm like, that's our fault. Yeah, totally. You know, I, I even had an uncle and this is, you know, by way of extension of kind of not just cultural values, but also family values within my own family system, who blatantly told me he's like, yeah, you know, um, girls like like to be mistreated or something like that. It almost sounds kind of kinky or something, but not not in that sense, just like how, again, going back to this aggressiveness and this assertiveness that um, was sort of being prescribed to me. And reinforced, um, this to your point, reinforced to me by sort of the, the, um, the values of my family as a whole. And um, so as I so, sort of started to lean into my 20s and wanted to be more kind of authentic and sort of consistent with my own, my own family's values, um, I felt like I needed to sort of abandon the 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 person that I really was um and 
and sort of I put on this this front of again assertiveness, aggressiveness, trying to put myself out there, and I'm just bringing that situation up, kind of my kind of love life, romantic life, as a um, kind of emblematic of I think the the values as a whole of my family that I was uh, trying to live up to, but in this in the process, I really lost sense of myself. And to go back to your point as well, I think I've had the most success. I've gotten the the best kind of attention when I am just myself. I, in fact, I had a counselor tell me at one point, like this was kind of in the middle of my twenties, kind of in the middle of figuring out the kind of person I wanted to be. Um, he said, it, it's almost like you would, you would kind of scorn the woman who would like come to your side when you're sick and bring you chicken noodle soup in favor of someone who would mistreat you. So as I was like learning how to sort of mistreat people, especially I think in a dating context, um, or at least take people for granted and view it too pragmatically, I was actually opening myself myself up to be mistreated. Absolutely. And and that advice about like your true friends will bring you chicken noodle soup when you're sick. I heard the same, some guy in the gym told me the same exact thing. So I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad us good people are able to like sniff, sniff each other out and be like, oh yeah, yeah, the chicken noodle soup. We're all on the same, uh, we're all on the same page with that one. And you're absolutely right. I think that you, you, when you disrespect other people, when you make these Faustian bargains and start throwing people um, under the bus, you actually don't really love yourself all that much because you think, oh, I love myself so much that I'm going to sacrifice all these plebeians so that I, you know, think of a chessboard, like I'm just going to sacrifice all the pawns so that, you know, like I can, but no, it's like you actually don't love yourself because if you loved yourself, you would be upset when you tell a lie. You would be upset when you compromise your virtues and your principles. That's actually a sign of true love. True love is not, is not compromising all of your virtues and all of your values to get ahead. I actually think that's a lack of self-love because a lot of these po- politicians, what do they want? You know, power and all that. They want to be loved, don't they, Sam? They want to be loved. They want, they want people to speak highly of them. And it's funny because the people who actually get high in politics we actually don't think very highly of them. For the, for the most part, we don't because we know that they're all making these corrupt Faustian bargains every single day and they get the exact opposite of what it is that they wanted. They're not loved. They're not spoken with in high regard. History books will most likely not be all that kind to them. And I, I, I think that there's no other way but to, 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 to not compromise the soul. Like you have to, you have to be true to your soul. And again, going back, it's not, you're not signing anything on a dotted line. It's just like, Hey, I'm Sam. I'm a great guy. And I treat women with respect. And I don't, I don't play these games where I, I treat them like dirt or I don't answer their phone call or their text messages for 10 days to make, make it seem like I'm busy. Right. And that's a Faustian bargain right there. Like, Oh, well, I'm, I, I totally have time to answer this text message, but I, I gotta be the uh, impressive all I'm like, no, I'm done playing that game. I'm, you know, if I've got the time, I'll text you back in like 10 seconds. If I, if I see your, if I see your message and that's Aaron being true to who I, who I am. And you, we, you can control that as Sam. I can control that as Aaron. I'm wondering how do we open the eyes of, of the greater world so that they can start valuing these things again? Because I, I, I feel like, I, I feel like we're, we're, 
our our visions like it, it, i feel like the whole nation has cataracts right now and we can't we can't see see what it is that really matters we're 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 we're, we're deluded into thinking that these machiavellian figures are super strong and super powerful and i'm wondering like how how exactly do we get people to see again yeah I, man so many thoughts there great question um you know, Ravi Zacharias, he was a, a Christian leader, uh, Indian uh, immigrant to the U.S., died recently, um, he, kind of a well-known guy in the evangelical world, an apologist, so kind of a defender of the faith, kind of an intellectual leader uh, of the evangelical wing of things. And um, he was based in Atlanta. That's kind of how I knew of, of him. I was living in Atlanta for a couple of years. And, um, you know, he died recently. And right after his death, some scandals came out about him. And it's totally public knowledge now. So, you know, you can check that out on Google, but it was just this realization that, man, we all thought we knew Ravi and what a disappointment that, you know, all these, you know, backroom operations were happening and in the darkness and some really shady shit was going down. And then it's like, well, what would you expect from somebody who named a ministry for himself? It was Ravi Zacharias of Ravi Zacharias Ministries. And so there's, there's, there's this kind of, exaltation of, of, um, you know, putting yourself at the front of the line. And I, and I, again, not to go down the Trump path and uh, sorry for keep bringing bringing him up, but cause I know it's a divisive topic, but you know, even within the evangelical world, 60 million evangelicals, uh, voted for Trump. And it's like, Trump represents everything that we're, we're not about, you know, growing up in the nineties in youth group and church and Christian schools. And like, in terms of every point of ethics, Trump is not what we uh, sort of the evangelical uh, agenda put forward, you know, in terms of like sexual values and family values and in, and, and in terms of leadership and putting yourself first in the line like that, that, that was never what we we talked about. And so, you know, there's a there's a confusion there in the evangelical camp about the kind of values we want to put forward. And I think the question is, what, what do we want to gain from being somebody like Ravi Zacharias, who names the ministry for himself and, and is doing things that shouldn't be done? And what do we want to gain from supporting someone like Trump? Is it is it control? And I think that's so, unfortunately, and in the Christian world, it is. It's control. We want to be in charge. We want control. And you know, if you look at the Bible, that's not what Jesus is about. Jesus is the person who washes his uh, disciples' feet. He says that, you know, if you want to be first, you have to set yourself last. Um, he says, if you want to find yourself and you have to lose yourself, um, if you want to gain the world, you sort of have to lose the world. It's just this constant paradox. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to gain? And as I ask myself, as I struck this Faustian bargain with, you know, I'm sorry to call my brother out, but my older brother in, in 10 years ago, as I was thinking about how to be, you know, more successful in the dating world, um, what was I trying to gain? I think it was some control. I think it was, I wanted to be like God in my own environment. You know, that goes back to the Garden of Eden. That's how the serpent tricked Adam and Eve into eating of the fruit was he, this false promise that if you eat this fruit, this, this bargain, then you will be like God and you will actually see good and evil in a way that you can't see it now. I think there was some of that for me. It was a desire for control, but I think it was also for me. And I think maybe I'm a little different than like a Ravi Zacharias or a, a Trump is that I felt kind of this 
internal sense of lack and, and inadequacy and insufficiency that I was trying to sort of account for or cover kind of a, a shame or a, na a nakedness, an internal nakedness that I was trying to cover feeling like, yeah, I have been really inadequate in the area of girls and dating. And I feel this kind of patheticness that I want to kind of make up for or account for. And so I'm going to take my brother's advice. And in the process, I'm going to lose sight of my authentic self. You know, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, even even when I think of my own girlfriend, like I I met by inviting her to a Buddhist temple, right? And that's that's not like a cool badass leather jacket motorcycle thing to do, right? Like, what kind of guy is like, hey, um, would you like to go on a date with me? I'm gonna visit a Buddhist temple, and sure enough, <laughs> she went along. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, that's an example. Like, I and, and that's how I caught you know, a, a real, uh, you know, that's how I caught somebody is by being myself, right? Like, like, like being completely geeky into religion, into my things that I like, I was able to attract my, my girlfriend for that. Whereas in, and throughout this happened, you know, I think I had just maybe turned 30 or I was 29. And it's like, I had spent my entire twenties being the opposite of my nature, going to bars, going to clubs, you know, wearing, um, you know, nice dress shirts and crap. And I attracted nothing. I, I attracted maybe a few mosquitoes, but, but nothing, nothing, nothing of any substance whatsoever. And, you know, I, I hate, I hate talking too much about politics, but I, I know that I, I did watch this thing with Donald Trump. And, and the one thing that stands out is that the man, I, I think on uh, Air Force One or on his private jet, the man has like a golden toilet. And, there's something like like when you think of Christ and you just think of religion, all religion in general, and you and you juxtapose like oh, the guy has a golden toilet, and I'm like, there's just something that that's like, and that I'm not judging. I'm not if you have the money to have a golden toilet, enjoy your your golden toilet. Okay, what I am trying to say is that. If you are a person of, of religious conviction, that doesn't really seem like a figurehead that matches that criteria. And I think very, you know, I think I think very few politicians match that criteria because overwhelmingly most politicians are extremely wealthy, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. They they are they are all millionaires. You'd be hard pressed to find someone in the Senate who, who earns like forty thousand a year or something. Like they're all. Yeah. They're all incredibly rich. So all of these figureheads don't really match religious ideals. They, re they really, really, really don't. And I, I think that if, if the, you know, the religious community, and I, I think this happens, you know, I, I think there is, there needs to be an awakening both with religious people, even with atheists and so forth. It's like, what do we really value? in human beings? Like, do we want to value a human being because they have a golden toilet and they're really wealthy and they have a big house? Like we love, we love figures that have big houses, right? And when, when someone from a big house talks, we're like, oh, big house man is talking. He's rich. He must be wise and know something. But it's like, is that really what we value? And, and, and the way I think of this, Sam, is even my own, I, I used to value big house people because I thought, oh, well, you, you can't, you could never have become this rich if you weren't wise and smart, right? And that was my thinking. But now I'm starting to realize that not, I'm not trying to generalize here. I'm sure there's some really rich people that are awesome and, and donate and, you know, volunteer on a Sunday at a, at a clothing drive and so forth. But what I am realizing that is if you have a big house, you might be a good person, but I think there's also other people who have big houses who did a lot of unsavory and nasty things 
to kind of get there, right? They, they may have thrown a lot of people under the bus. They may have, you know, they, they were the guy who fudged the financial reports and so forth. And I'm like, they can teach me how to be corrupt and they can teach me to be an opportunist, but are they going to teach me how to be a good person? And if they themselves are not a good person, what makes me think that they're going to have my best interest at heart if we elect them? You know, like if I elect the really, really rich man uh, to be my senator or, or to be in the House of Representatives or to be president, they're really good at, at, at becoming rich themselves. They're very good at, at, at self grand, you know, uh, building up their own wealth. But why the hell are they going to give two craps about me when their whole life has been about them? Yeah, I, I always worry about be being too uh, becoming too preachy on this podcast or too sermonic because you know my you know my domain is is uh you know the kind of the christian world i'm i'm kind of steeped in the christian world i haven't always enjoyed that but <laughs> it's just true uh you know i i my both my grandfathers were pastors and my parents you know ran a ministry christian ministry when i was growing up and you know, um, I, I've spent a lot of my life in the kind of the Christian and I would say evangelical bubble, although I feel an, uh, an extreme dissonance with, um, you know, most sort of evangelical people. Um, I just want to say, so sorry if I get too sermonic on this podcast, but I do think, um, you know, as you were talking, this idea that we can, again, in the words of Christ, we can gain the whole world. Um, but if we forfeit our soul, like what good is that? And I like that because, you don't, you don't have to be Christian to, to, to believe in that, you know? And I, it, it was central to sort of, you know, the life and ministry of Christ, his time on earth and his disciples did not understand that, you know, he was uh, kind of what, what he was here for. Uh, most people didn't while he was alive. And it wasn't until like, you know, he, you know, went through the resurrection and everything like that, that things came more clearly, but that idea of you can, the, and, and again, I like the way you unpacked the idea of the soul. It's not, we're not just talking about a Christian or Jewish concept of the soul or some even religious concept of the soul. We're talking about really the kind of the, uh, kind of our, uh, essentially our authentic self, our core values, um, and even our core stories and living in a way that's congruent um, with, with all of that. You know, we can climb to the top, but if we lose sight of ourselves, um, what do we have at the end of the day? And that's, the question I would pose to people. And, and I would add to your point that like the development of character, you know, David Brooks from the New York times has written a lot about sort of like character and, you know, and not even from like a religious standpoint, more just sort of from a kind of a common humanity standpoint, like the development of character over the acquisition of material things or, or any other sort of achievements that we can have is, really what it means to live the good life. And that's something that I want to spend my life exploring. I'll say one other thing from the the life of Christ, the kind of the, the sayings of Christ, you know, he, um, there's a parable in, in the book of Luke and there's a rich man and, and, you know, it's kind of a rich and poor kind of parable. And, and this man comes up to Jesus and says like, Hey, Christ, like, um, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's kind of a classic, like, inheritance battle story which are still you know in existence every day and and christ is like you know i'm not a judge like i'm not you're you're talking to the wrong person i don't have the authority to to do this um but he says he kind of says a warning and he says you know uh the um uh, the 
our lives um, do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And um, the, the literal translation of it is even when our, our possessions and our achievements abounds, even when it abounds to someone, his life or her life is not made up of his possessions. And, and I, I love that idea because it's just a reminder that um, there's more than meets the eye and we need to continue to sort of let the, um, the bucket down into the well and draw back up and do it over and over and over uh, to sort of continue to gauge and to pour into our authentic self. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many people will be like, oh, well, that's, that's weakness. You should fight for every penny in that inheritance. And I'm like, you know what, you know, it's, it's okay to put up a little bit of a fight for what you believe is yours. But at the end of the day, if that's going to make or break your character, then it may, it may not be worth all that much. And this also, you know, now I'm going to sound a little sermonic because I'll talk about Buddhism a little bit in the sense that, in Buddhism, there's this an idea I'm paraphrasing, but there can be no outward mastery until there is inward mastery. It, 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 it cannot exist. There's no way that you are going to be able to conquer this world or, or do X, Y, and Z until there is complete, absolute inward mastery. And that means being completely content in poverty, being completely content with what you have, being content uh, with your relations with other people and making amends or making justice with that. If those things are not in place, you will never, ever conquer the outside. You can call yourself a president or, or, or CEO or whatever it is that you want. to. You can have titles, but you will never have mastery of the outside world until there is full and absolute mastery of oneself. And I don't know if it's possible to have full mastery of oneself, but you ought to you ought to get at a really high level before you think about conquering the mountains and, and so forth. Okay, on to the second thing that kind of makes people make Faustian bargains, and this is the tougher one: fear. And we 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 have two we have a, a number of people at work, right? We have the person who's the opportunist who throws people under the bus, but then Sam and and this this person I kind of feel for a little bit more. We have the person who's working in an organization and their boss tells them, if you don't do this, you're fired, you know, or, or like, we're, we'll get rid of you. Or if you don't play along with what we're doing here, you're done for, you're fired. Good luck finding health insurance and all this other stuff. And this, <laughs> the, the, this, is, this is the person that I feel for a lot because they're, they're not an opportunist. They're not going out of their way to commit evil acts to get ahead. They're just trying to save what little they have. So I'm wondering if you have any tips for a person that's perhaps making Faustian bargains out of fear. Yeah, man, dude, you're, you're so good at this podcast thing. Um, again, I would just kind of my caveat here is like, I've never had to be in a situation, you know, where my life literally depended on following orders that I thought were evil or wrong. I've had the freedom to resign from a job if I felt like, you know, things weren't heading in the right direction. But there's a book called They Thought They Were Free that was written in the 50s. Um, and it's about like the ordinary judge, baker and police officer in um, in Germany in the 1930s and how they, they thought they were free until the Nazis came along, the Nazi party, and told them that they really weren't free and they were missing out on all these things. And, and then it got to the point in, in 1930s Germany where if they didn't do what the Nazi party said or prescribed, then they would be locked up or banished or killed. And uh, I mean, there's so many different stories in those years leading up to the Second World War. But, you know, I've never had to be in that situation. 
So I feel very naive and very, uh, you know, sort of unqualified to speak. Um, I know that in my own life, there was, there's been a lot of moments of fear. I think I kind of took hook, line, and sinker my brother's advice about dating and about girls and about being more assertive and aggressive. And because I was afraid that if I didn't, I would not be, be sort of a, a, you know, a man after his own heart, you know, and after my family's own heart, in a sense, like I was trying to, you know, shore up a kind of a sense of inadequacy in myself. That's a little bit different than what you're describing. I, I also had another instance when I was first a pastor in Iowa, there was a, an older gentleman in my church who grew up in my church and just felt that everyone was spiritually very lazy and dead. They were just going through the motions, going to church on Sunday and, you know, but they weren't really you know, they didn't really know what they were doing or really have like a very active, you know, relationship with God. And, and so he kind of came to me and he said, you know, if you pastor in this, unless you sort of pastor in my way, um, he was, he kind of viewed himself as a missionary to his own church, to, to the church I was pastoring. And he said, unless you sort of um, kind of adopt my theology, my approach, my practical ideas about how to reach this congregation, then you are going to be just like everyone else. You know, you're going to be ineffective and you're going to be kind of contributing to their, uh, their spiritual condition. And I had a, a choice to make in that situation. I was like, I can ignore this guy or, but if I do, he's going to, you know, give uh, sort of make a hard time for me give me hell. Or I can sort of like, forget my own values here and what I think this church needs and kind of who I am as a, as a, a believer and a spiritual leader. And uh, I was really torn because ultimately I sort of ignored his advice. I sort of refused to strike a bargain with him to say, I'm going to do it your way because, you know, it's sort of like, if you do it my way, I'll be on your team and I'll make life really good for you is kind of what he said. And I sort of ignored that and he ended up becoming a thorn in my side. You know, I didn't become his ally. I didn't become his secret partner in this, this, uh, this ministry and life was hard for me, you know, especially as a 27 year old pastor, it was distressing because I felt like threatened by him and his, you know, his sort of rival leadership in our church. Um, but I'm proud of myself looking back on that time because like I stuck to my guns. I stayed true to myself. You know, you know I, I think that was a Faustian bargain right there, Sam. If I ever saw one, I think I think it was. And let's go to the most extreme version, right? We think of uh, people living in Nazi Germany where if they don't make the Faustian bargain, they could literally be shot, right? And I, I, it's easy for, for me and you on our high horses to be like, oh, yeah, if I was in Nazi Germany, I would totally – like, okay, you know what? Like there's some really good points there. And when your when your life is at, is on the line like that, you know, that, that opens up a whole nother can of worms. But what I like about life today, at least, is that the stakes aren't as high as that. And that's why, but the thing is, is that many people think in our head, it is that high. They think that they think that it is that big of a deal. And I'm like, okay, you chose not to make the Faustian bargain. You're like, sir, with all due respect, I'm going to pre I, I, you know, I'm going to preach and I'm going to interpret the Bible the way that I feel is right. 
And th there were consequences for that. He, he became, you know, like there, there's consequences. And I, this happened to me in my teaching career as well, Sam. There were times where I could have made a Faustian bargain and allowed uh, the students to behave in ways that were just unacceptable and quite, qu quite frankly, very dangerous. I could have just turned the other cheek and made the Faustian bargain. Uh, but I said, no, I'm going to take this to the next level. And I paid the price. I was fired. Consequences. My income was dim diminished. My livelihood was diminished. I couldn't, you know, I didn't have money to go uh, to TGI Fridays with the friends and all this other good, you know, all, all that stuff was just ripped away from me. And there are like, I, again, I'm being very serious here. There are consequences when you choose not to make the Faustian bargain. God doesn't just come in and like save you in the last minute. And then, you know, in, in, in the, uh, in the movies, the good guy just gets saved the last second. But in real life, that doesn't happen. You, you do pay the consequences and you do pay the toll. But I think because we're not living in, in extreme like Soviet era or Nazi Germany, okay, I pay the consequences. I eat a few more, you know, I eat tuna fish sandwiches a little bit more often. I, I have some more canned soup. But at the end of the day, this is all about cultivating higher self-mastery. Whereas when I'm in situations where my soul is being compromised, I might have external power in the form of higher income, right? So I have external power in terms of higher income, but I have less power in having a more purified soul or, or purified, for the atheist listening, more purified sense of value. And I, I, I think that that is really what's what's important with all the decisions that we make is that there will be consequences i'm not i'm not i'm not naive you know I, i've been through a lot of crap in my life i'm not telling you that you know the the good king is going to restore you at the end and, and it's all going to end happy I'm, I'm not i'm not promising you that what i will say is that in your renewed poverty or whatever you will have a greater love and you will have a, a, a you will sleep very well at night and you will have a greater sense of yourself and, and gain a, a much higher level of mastery. I completely agree. And to go back to your friend, the girl, the woman who was teaching with you, who was like, I mean, I'm a badass. Not my friend, bitch. by the what? way. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Your, uh, your, your acquaintance, she, and then how her kind of attitudes were sort of celebrated and exalted. And I, I bring that up because I think one of the ways we escape this sort of vicious cycle of having to make really hard decisions is like surrounding ourselves with good people. You know, there's nothing like doing life with like healthy people. Um, and I mean, like, especially like emotionally healthy people, people who have done the hard work of like processing kind of their lives and their stories and like they're good at telling their story and good at drawing other people's stories out and asking questions and listening in a reflective way that is just really inviting and warm and people who are um, kind of in touch with their feelings and I've talked about this you know in other podcasts but I don't think there's any thing on earth like doing life with healthy people and so you know there's a bi there's a bible verse about it's actually a quote of an ancient proverb but you know bad company ruins good morals you know and it's it's just this idea of like again redemptive community and like surrounding yourselves with people who celebrate you know character development and you know from a christian perspective the fruit of the spirit you know like the good stuff of life like the things that make people good people and um you know, so there's, 
there's no replacement. And I would also say like, I'm definitely an evangelist of therapy. You know, there's, there's nothing like going through therapy, like good counseling um, and, and learning to grapple with your own story um, with a, a, you know, a certified licensed counselor. Like these things are to me, what make a good life. And, and I'm excited, you know, I'm kind of like not young anymore. Um, I'm not at 21. I'm not, you know, 45 yet, but like, I'm starting to kind of, you know, in the next 10, 12 years, I'm going to sort of approach like the halfway mark in, in some ways, you know, and hopefully, you know, God willing. Right. But, uh, as I think about the kind of person I want to be and continue to grow into and, and the kind of life I want to live, I want to do life with healthy people and I want to be a healthy, a healthy people. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and this, this might, what I'm about to say might go a little bit against like uh, Christian theology, but I do believe that there is a certain degree of like heaven on earth and hell on earth. And I think that when we make, when we refuse to make the Faustian bargains, it will happen in such a way that good people will just magically kind of flock into your life almost. And, and like, you can kind of create a, a little slice of heaven in your world because now you're, you're a lot poorer. You have a lot less money. But then you're constantly brushing elbows with good people, right? You're constantly brushing elbows. It's almost as if you are in heaven in a way because you're constantly brushing elbows with awesome people that got your back and you have very little to show for yourself in a material sense, but you're very rich in your social life. Whereas if you are you know, working the corporate game and backstabbing people, yeah, you're very rich in terms of your, your bank account, but you're extremely poor in the people that you're associating with because the people the higher you go up the ladder the more nastier it becomes and the more vicious it becomes so in a way you're kind of creating your own hell on earth by constantly being surrounded by cutthroat people people who you don't trust people who are going to backstab you people who are going to lie to you so in, in a way whether you believe in he heaven and hell in the in, in the afterlife or in the ethereal sense the choices you make and the people you surround yourself with you can kind of determine what paradise or hell that you're living in right here on earth. I think that's a great insight. Actually, I think that's really consistent with Christian theology and, and biblical theology, because like even in, you know, the history of Israel, you know, in the, in the Bible, um, like God is sort of constantly bringing them back to the promised land, you know? So like they, Adam and Eve are banished from Eden and that's a tragedy but then through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like Israel uh, is, is born again, you know, the nation of Israel is born and, um, and, and through Moses and the tabernacle, like the tabernacle is sort of a picture of Eden. And, and so when they're sort of in communion with God and, and sort of at, at peace with each other and sort of in a place of health, it's sort of like they're close to Eden again, you know, and even the design of the tabernacle points to the, the fruits and the, the, the fertility of, you know, Eden and, 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 and you see that in Solomon's temple as well, when, when they are sort of in the Holy of Holies and interacting with God and others in, in a way that's, you know, congruent with the universe and, 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 and as it should be like, again, they're sort of close to paradise, you know, and I think that we can sort of continue that story in our own lives and create pockets of heaven. Um, and we can definitely create pockets of hell. Um, but, um, but I think that you're really onto something there, Aaron. Thank you, Sam. And, you know, you know, I, I, I say these things and, and, you know, I, again, I'm not trying to, 
dissuade anyone from believing in what they believe in the afterlife and so forth. But if we're really mindful with the deals that we're making and the people that we're surrounding with ourselves, we can take a lot of control over our present day reality. And yeah, it, it might end up that we have a lot less money and a lot less stuff to show for us. But in the, in the, in the, in the end of the day, you know, I would rather kind of have people that genuinely love me for who I am and genuinely uh, love me because I'm a good guy, not because they're afraid of me, not because I have a powerful title. That's all false. And if we if we can learn something from the the great villains of history, a lot of these guys were really, really paranoid and they kind of died alone and they, they died with like a bullet to the head or, or in some really, really, really <laughs> nasty and like gruesome ways, right? So they thought that they were on top. They kind of got taken out on the bottom, if you would. So <laughs> it's like, you know, like, like we really, it, 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 this really is like a, you know, a, a Sesame Street level of morality here. It's not that difficult, folks. You know, like, don't make these Faustian bargains. There will be consequences. But in the end, you're going to get a lot more than you lost. Sam, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. This concludes the 72nd episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azarad.